from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. And in addition, in the near future of therapeutics, not only is it these biologics, but we're going to learn in combination how do we manipulate or add things into the bacteria in addition to that. So it's a menu, not just a one-off, if you will. As we begin our next series showcasing the top medical professionals and their specialties, we recognize that they hail from the most highly regarded institutions across the country. Now, we've landed on an organization that's right in our backyard. U.S. News & World Report ranks Cedars-Sinai Medical Center as one of the best hospitals in the nation. It's a teaching hospital with 40 locations. It's credited with groundbreaking research and a reputation of being a truly patient-centric hospital. Over a thousand doctors practice at Cedars. And one of the docs that's credited with developing groundbreaking therapies while focusing on patient experience is Dr. Stefan Targan. And he's here with us today on Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, first, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you again. My daughter has spent years struggling with the fact that no matter what she eats, she's probably going to have some overwhelming pain. It's debilitating. So I'm looking forward to this show because, well, I love her, and so far no one has been able to figure out what's wrong. We have a special guest today, Dr. Stefan Targan. He's the award-winning doctor of Inflammatory Bowel and Immunobiology Research Institute at Cedars-Sinai in L.A. He's become one of the field's most renowned physician scientists. He's also known for training and mentoring hundreds of physicians globally who are now thought leaders in the field. His medical degree is from Johns Hopkins. He had a series of fellowships at UCLA, and now he's at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. He's board certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology, infectious disease. Welcome, Dr. Targan. Thanks for joining us today. That's my pleasure. So let's just start off with the basic. What exactly is Crohn's disease? So Crohn's disease is chronic inflammation of parts of the intestine. And it's manifest in patients in many different ways, because depending on what part of the intestine is involved, how severe the inflammation is. And as you had said at the beginning with your daughter having pain, pain is one of the main manifestations that can occur. Can you explain how it makes you feel so poor and how it manifests itself? So it makes you feel poorly because when you have inflammation of various parts of your intestine, it makes it very difficult to eat a regular meal. It's very difficult if you're having a lot of diarrhea along with this and pain to actually go out and do what you would like to do, be very comfortable in going out to dinner, be very comfortable in going out on a date. And if it's severe enough, a lot of patients uh, tend to be housebound from it. And so it can change one's life. Now, Steph, you and I both trained in the, in the 20th century. So here in the 21st century, I'm sure there must be an absolute definitive cause for inflammatory bowel disease. So there are genes. It's not a single gene genetic disease, but multiple genes and combinations thereof that sort of set the table. 
And it's what happens in the environment, both within your intestine and the bugs that are there and and how they interact with those patients that have that underlying genetic problem and affected by sort of the the other part of the environment that that is there, which includes diet, which includes, you know, other things in the environment that have been, been known to have an effect on that, such as smoking that will affect it. So how do you test for it, and what do you see that gives you a positive test for Crohn's? We have many more sort of a diagnostic tests one could get, like with COVID in your arm, and take a look and see what that is. But usually somebody presents with symptoms. People get a blood test, and the blood tests or a stool test will tell you, well, gosh, there's inflammation going on in the gut. Let's evaluate that. And then a gastroenterologist will do a colonoscopy, looking inside, looking up into the small intestine, going up and taking a look also in the stomach and down in the first part of the small intestine. And we'll see whether there are ulcers or inflammation or swelling that's in there. And then take pieces of tissue and there's specific characteristics of that tissue that would be consistent with Crohn's disease. And then if you find it positive, how do you treat it? Well, there's many ways of treating it. And I think we're moving right now from the 20th into the 21st century where we can really determine by how someone presents, really determined by some of their blood tests, really determined by some of their new diagnostics that we have, that they're going to have a severe course. And if we know those kinds of things, we tend to be more aggressive up front to get them completely healed and into remission early on. You know, in the 20th century, we didn't have that. There weren't that going on in that. And that's a lot of what we're doing at Cedars-Sinai is developing those kinds of things so that patients don't have to suffer for this with months going up on a pyramid, as we call it, of medications that get more effective, if you will, as they go up in doing that. So with the new biologics, with the new treatment modalities, how important is diet and its impact on on the disease? Diet clearly can have a role in two ways. One, it can certainly affect some symptoms because when you have inflammation in the gut, the bacteria that are there that we all have change and they then break down food very differently and can cause bloating and this kind of feeling associated with it. We're finding out, although we don't have an answer or like we don't have a specific cause, that the community of all these bacteria there are very important and that they affect the inflammation in multiple ways, can upregulate in what they produce or even help get it under control. With biologics, they tend to take care of the inflammation that's within the intestinal wall in a good way but it sometimes don't change back the bacteria that's in the gut. And so if you have a biologic, which is the major approach, and it causes you to go into remission, so you're able to go outside, do the things that we say patients may not be able, go back to your life as normal as possible, then diet is used as an add-on, if you will, not as a direct treatment to try to help with some of the symptoms. So one of the things we love to do in this show when it arises is try to debunk myths sure. of you know what is out there in uh, as far as folklore and what is going on in terms of the propagation of, of misinformation. And I think this in many ways brings up the, the issue of probiotics. Yes. And at least the commercials seem to tout that what you need for your overall immuno health is to help regulate your intestinal flora, and therefore probiotic is the panacea. 
Could you maybe address probiotics in general? And then is there a role for probiotics in any way relative to inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, because of the diversity as we've gotten into at the beginning of the show, probiotics can change the community of bacteria that are there. But probiotics just alone do not cause, you know, is the one treatment modality that's going to get everybody under control and everybody needs to take it because they get, you know, healthy. Some people respond with symptoms. The question though is some of the symptoms may not be related to changing inflammation. It's just I described, you know, the gas that comes out and things that are going to do that. There are some components of Crohn's disease where probiotics can add to things, but it's not a panacea. Can taking a probiotic prevent Crohn's disease? Taking probiotics does not prevent Crohn's disease, no. So if you don't mind me bringing my daughter back in it, like I'm sure many patients before they get the right doctor that diagnoses them correctly, she has become a vegetarian because she believes that whenever she consumes beef or red meat or anything like that, it exacerbates the problem tenfold. And so she's been convinced that this is how she has to eat. Is that an appropriate move on her part or is that something that she should be looking into? People do when they, when they even have you know, Crohn's disease diagnosed, et cetera, find out there are certain things that affect them. The honest answer is we don't know what the reason or mechanism is that they would feel better off those foods. But if you're eating meat or other types of vegetables and things, again, altering, we're learning more, altering the, the bacteria or even the fungi that are there within that can change symptoms. We see that a lot, but it depends on what the cause of her pain is. And as you said before, she doesn't know. And I don't know what her evaluations are. So is the adage in Crohn's disease that there is no specific diet to adhere to, but basically to avoid those things that seem to exacerbate your symptoms? Yeah. I mean, there are people that are looking at diet in a controlled fashion to see what it is. And the more controlled good studies are done, you know, it's hard to do something about a FODMAP diet. There may be some changes in this, but it's all based on somebody getting a particular diet and coming in and telling their doctor, I feel great. This is fantastic. When you do a rigorous trial like you do on these drugs, you don't see major changes in these, with these diets compared to taking another diet or, or what is called the, the placebo effect or seeing that. But that is not to say that people on their own individually to try to do what they feel better, but it's not going to heal the, uh, the inflammation. So in looking at some of your things that you're credited with, where you have focused on diagnosis and prognosis and targeted therapeutic selection, sounds almost like the way we're treating cancers by trying to find the right cocktail that is going to attack this particular disease. Are you treating inflammatory bowel syndrome that way, where you're trying to identify specific cocktails and specific medications that work on your particular disease? I'm glad you asked that because that's just my entire life's work. <laughs> but, you know, so, so I'm, I'm announcing that because I could be a bit prejudiced. However, we're in an era now that it's now possible. So you brought up oncology, which is based on the differences between the same type of tumor, but the tumor, and being able to focus a, a manipulation of a gene expression in there that's causing behind the tumor and treat it. 
in IBD, what we're doing now and the technology that's exploded over this last five to 10 years, we're doing it in a population level as opposed to within tumors of the same kind. So the disease being prone or ulcerative colitis. And my answer to you is yes, you can parse out the different kinds of diseases using genetics and an expression of certain genes and certain serologic reactions, and we're doing it. And so we can tell, getting to tell which patients are not going to respond to a particular drug. So don't use that drug. The chances are not 100%, but are, but are so high. And yet there's others where we know that what the dominant cause may be of that or, or inflammatory pathway may be. And then that patient is going to have a much higher response to that. And that's what the entire Ebre and CEDARS has been all about. And in fact, now drugs are going to patients using that approach and having beginning of companion diagnostics like in oncology. So yes, it's, it's being approached. Is, and the next question would certainly be, really roll this out for everything. And develop, as you're developing drugs, find the population, not after you've got a drug, to then try to find the population. And that's what's being done now. And in addition, in the near future, as you brought up about a menu of therapeutics, not only is it these biologics, but we're going to learn in combination, how do we manipulate or add things into the bacteria in addition to that? So it's a menu, not just a one-off, if you will. So it's, it's all in progress. We'll be back with Dr. Stefan Targan in just 30 seconds. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find one. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. Okay, we're back with Dr. Targan. And doctor, I wonder if you could talk to us about, you've done a clinical trial for something called a TNF inhibitor. What is that exactly? Well, TNF is a protein that's very much involved in driving inflammation in a multitude of parts of the body. In the joints, can occur on the skin and in the lung and all different parts of that. And an antibody or an anti-blocker of TNF then takes that out of the local area so that it can't do its bad harm, takes it down to a point where it's needed, but not too much so that it causes all of this inflammation. And what does TNF stand for? Tumor necrosis factor. Again, going back to oncology, that's where it was first described. Didn't think it was doing to, to inflammation, but due to taking care of cancer in that sense. So it, it killed cancer. So this project that you initiated actually resulted in the first biologic that was approved for treatment at IBD? Yeah, so it, it, it's hard to believe it's been this long, but, but yeah, this, this was in 1996. 
And I know I don't look that old, but uh, but uh, I'm kidding. We but, were all uh, in black and white back then. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the very first trial that came up with uh, biologics. And I remember back then, what disease was this going to be used in in the first place? So was it going to be rheumatoid arthritis? Was it going to be Crohn's disease, which it was first used in? And there was a back and forth in doing that. And this had just been used, you know, for when patients get bacterial sepsis to try to rescue them from dropping their blood pressure, but it was it failed. Nonetheless, we could, we went there, myself and a, and a colleague of mine, to the company and, and got them to say, no, you've got to do it in Crohn's disease first. Trial was done, never to be enrolled. We enrolled it in five weeks. That never happened again at all. And lo and behold, patients with very active disease totally responded. How important is family and family history in terms of developing this disease? Well, there is definitely a genetic predisposition. There's definitely families with multiple members that have similar genetics. But then if you grow up in your family, you have similar bacteria because you're eating the kind of the same things, etc. And so there is definitely a family relationship. But there are others that they're the only ones in their families that uh, actually have the disease. But now we're looking at well, how can we prevent it? Meaning, you know, who in, the, in a family may be ready to have this disease if something happens in the environment that may set it off? And, and that's where we are, kind of the precipice of getting into trying to do that. Is this something that is developed at a particular phase of life? Is it something that hits at a particular time? Or is it something that you can suddenly find yourself with as an adult? So we thought always, and I'm going to go back because we, we referenced it in the last century, <laughs> that it was a young person's disease and that it happened for in, in teenagers and people in their 20s. But we know now, having obviously looked at it, it's, it, there's a span from children under two years of age that can get this disease. And with those kids, they happen to have pretty severe disease. And it happens to be, you can, rather than I said, there's many genes that do it. Those kids have only a single abnormality in the gene that may, is probably causing it. To people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, which I've seen, it's the first break of the disease itself. So we have this whole spectrum now. And clearly, if you're less than two and get the disease, and then you're 60 or 70, something different going on under, underlying that, uh, that, why that had that span of years and years like that. If I were to have the disease and you treated me, do I simply become one of a throng of people people who are basically guinea pigs where you're trying to figure out en masse how to treat us? Or are there methods of figuring out, like more and more with cancers, people are actually taking tumors and injecting them into similar organs in mice and trying to figure out what the correct therapies are. Sounds like a lot of trial and error. Yeah, but it's not full, it's not just guessing. It's taking information putting it together and designing experiments. I'll give you an example. So of, of a drug that's now in trials in, in that sense, but it originated from somebody making the protein and not knowing what it did to finding out that it did a lot of things. And then all of a sudden genetics were done and found out that there's a huge gene abnormality right in the gene of this protein. And therefore, that gene caused there to be a lot of this protein made. Then animals were developed to overexpress this protein. And guess what? We developed mice that look just like Crohn's disease. 
So they had narrowing and strictures. They had inflammation in their colon. They had liver inflammation. They had skin inflammation. And nobody had ever done, done, done that. So it wasn't happenstance. It was a process that you go through when you make a finding. And then it's interesting now because these are now in trials and patients that are likely to be specifically related to how we can find those patients that overexpress this a lot. And those are the ones that are going to respond. Is there an immunotherapy that you're targeting that's really designed to maybe suppress your own immune system, which is causing some of the inflammation? Yeah, most of these biologics do that in a selected fashion. So it's already ongoing. If you're saying it is to a specific, like in cancer, a protein or something that seems to be causing that, or as they're doing it to, you know, CAR-T, educated T-cells, if you will, which is part of the immune system, and, and going into cancers, we're not at that yet. We're not yet at the, what are the driving proteins that seem to be driving all this amplified inflammation that's going on. But we're getting there. What is fibrosis? Fibrosis is scarring. So it's, it's not a hard form scar. So the protein that lays down there called collagen continues to lay down there and there's more and more and more it lays down there. And when it becomes hard like that, you don't reverse it. But you can reverse with there's a, when there's a lot of this protein about to form one of these non-reversible scars, you can reverse that in animals by giving them this particular drug and it reverses it totally back to a baseline. Even though if you then at the same in animals, you put a control antibody, they go on to develop scarring and, and horrendous. So you block the progression of that. And what we're beginning to find out, just to, to take this one more step, we can start to find out who are susceptible to getting this scarring before they get it. So this would be something perfect in the appropriate patient, as we talked about, the ones that overexpress this, to give earlier in the disease to prevent that. You know, in reference to our current pandemic, the immunotherapy, has it had an impact on susceptibility to COVID? And has COVID had some sort of interesting impact on Crohn's disease and the inflammatory process? Everybody all over the world is, is, is trying to answer. There's tons of trials on to take a look at. So the first part of that question is, there's no, in general, increase of susceptibility to COVID infection on patients, even on medications except one, which may be corticosteroids in that. But all the biologics you know, alone or in some of the combinations, not. And even if you get the disease and have all of this, uh, there's no increase in severity of the disease so far with what's been done. There's been some big studies that have been done related to that. If you get COVID, because the receptor for it is, is very big in the gut, and a lot of the early phases can be diarrhea, like anything, you could set off Crohn's disease in addition to having that. But it, it doesn't seem like it has as much an effect as an example if someone would have disease and go down to Mexico or any other country, get Terista, you know, come on back and they get treated, but it's flared the disease. COVID doesn't seem to be doing that. And maybe in rare cases. How about geography in, in Crohn's disease? Is this a northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, worldwide in a homogeneous fashion? What's the distribution of Crohn's disease? Well, we once thought it was northern Europe uh, and it was all north. And as you go south, it was a south-north, you know, more in the north. But that's back in the last century. What's become more, which goes back to so potentially food, is that it looks like it's all over the world now. 
So it's in Asia, huge explosion in Asia occurred. And by the way, first ulcerative colitis, then Crohn's emerges in a country. And all their diets got westernized. Or if you go very interestingly, where in last century something was done and people that went from Ethiopia to, to England, some people lived in, in not in good environment and one were in a very clean environment. And the people that lived not in the so good environment didn't get IBD. The ones that got clean got IBD. But it's worldwide. So is this worldwide because it's cross-breeding or is worldwide because there's a homogenization of diets? Well, I think it's diets, but it's also what diets do to the bacteria that are there and everything else. So certain parts of Africa, South Africa, it's, it's rampant, okay, just as much as in the United States. But other parts of Africa are underdeveloped countries. It's not very frequent at all. Wait, when you say rampant, can you give us some numbers in the U.S., for example? It's probably northward of two and a half million. So it's not, it's not rampant means in, in that way. That's plenty. The CDC that's come out where they look at things differently and how precise are the diagnoses of these. So there's all these things that go into it. They've said three million, but it's more likely a million. But if you look to us 20 years ago in, in Japan, there was very, very few. Now it's rising relatively over time. How many people are walking around with IBD and they have not been properly diagnosed? I think the, the ones that are more difficult in where their disease is that may be presenting, recognizing uh, certain things that would be, you know, IBD or, or not, or Crohn's or not. And the other way, they get overdiagnosed. And we get both of them that come to our, our center. And so it, it goes on both sides of that. I think there are people out there that have Crohn's disease that don't get diagnosed because you know, certain symptoms they have. We, you know, as somebody like the group at at CS, all we do is see IBD patients as gastroenterologists. And most gastroenterologists see all kinds of different gastrointestinal diseases that don't respond to those sort of clues. And that others that have had symptoms, but have been under-evaluated or haven't done a full evaluation associated or haven't done the right blood test that says, yeah, that probably is that way. Uh, Less and less of that's happening, but it's still out there. Does genetic mapping work as a diagnosis tool? Not yet. You know, it's not not like Tay-Sachs disease. You know you have. It's a monogenetic disease. So it's not one thing that you would have because, again, it's the genetics that's being done, the way it's being done in, in a multitude of genes is there's a greater frequency of a particular genetic change than the normal population, but it's not specific. It's just, you know, it's a bunch of them coming together at this point. So the Western world is obsessed with gluten. Yes. Is there any impact and any relevance to, to Crohn's disease? There's three things. Gluten directly, you know, with obviously celiac disease, which is an inflammatory disease of specific, you know, antigen in, in, in gluten. There's gluten where people will not take gluten because they want to feel better. And when they get off gluten, they feel much better. And we're not sure what that is, but they don't have celiac disease or anything. In gluten, if you have pure Crohn's disease, one way or the other doesn't affect it other than our early discussion about changing diet and feeling better from it, kind of having Crohn's in that. But I can tell you, well, you have to work that there are patients that have both Crohn's disease and celiac disease. And so when they take gluten, the part of their symptoms that are related to celiac disease would get better if they're on a rigorous gluten-free diet. But in general, without someone who has both other than the same of people that take gluten and they wouldn't, wouldn't have it and they get better, would those symptoms would get it, but not the crumb. I mean, it's become so popular to say that you're sensitive to gluten 
aren't most of the people who think they're sensitive to gluten actually more allergic to wheat? Could be. It's definitely a, you know, a component they may be. I haven't seen an actual allergy being assessed in these people when they get off gluten to say that they get, I don't know whether it's again, their symptoms can be bloating because that's part of what happens with the, the bacteria making gases and things like that. So I can't say it's an allergy particular. What's the next step for you in your research? What are you close to breaking through? Well, I think other than we talked about precision approaches to treat patients and know who is going to do the best with what medications are getting developed, it's moving towards getting together all of this explosion of technologies and coming together with how that represents the picture of what kind of Crohn's disease, taking all of that and preventing progression of people to get worse, but then actually backing up and preventing knowing who's going to be susceptible. First looking, I think, at families just because they're more genetically similar to that. And then taking all of this knowledge and knowing how, with a menu of things, preventing the actual development of the illness. That's right where we are. That's the next phase of things we're going to do. In addition, acting upon getting the right medicine for the right patient. I can say, although in type 1 diabetes, they've had a, you know, markers that tell when that's going to be, family's going to do, to do it, they have not yet been able to prevent it. They may delay it a little, but they have not been able to prevent it. Because I think it's not going to be one medication. You've got to know how these things come together and you know, change the different parts to make them then neutral. Then I think you're going to be able to do it. So, I mean, obviously, everyone knows about colon cancer screening and colonoscopy. And so many people walk around with, with gastrointestinal distress. How does one decipher when they really need to see a gastroenterologist for fear that maybe they actually have something more significant than just irritable bowel and actually have an inflammatory bowel? Is there some sort of screening modality? Is there something that the lay public can use to kind of differentiate when they've crossed that threshold to something more serious? It's not available yet other than Z, but I think if irritable bowel is a whole other entity, which patients, just to make it more complicated with irritable bowel, can have Crohn's disease in that sense. But irritable bowel presents with either constipation or diarrhea. When you look, and there's not a stool test yet for patients to do this, but there's a stool test and it's, and it's not, doesn't show any inflammation or a blood test doesn't show things that would say there's some inflammation going on and there are now new, more sensitive tests. And I think there's going to be finger stick kinds of things that are now emerging to be able to do at home. When those come around, then I think somebody needs to, to do it. But if they start to lose weight, if they start to get up at night to have to go to the bathroom in that sense, so that they're not just going a lot during the day, but they have to get up at night and actually do that, if they start to get some manifestations in their joints or manifestations on their skin or other things that would, you know, many times patients that ultimately get gut disease design first start with arthritis, first start with skin disease. And then because we know the relationships of those things to the gut, they'll get a colonoscopy and look at it and then they'll be found. Dr. Stefan Targan, thank you for coming today. This was very enlightening. And of course, Dr. Steve, thanks for coming. I really appreciate you guys both spending the time. I know you're both busy. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, and our mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. 
Don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Thanks for coming. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.